Hello everyone, welcome back to the Walkie Talkie podcast. My name is Jennifer. And my name is Amira. And I'm Luna. We are volunteers from Isaac in Sunway, and we are currently working on a project called Empowering Equalities. And in case any of y'all are wondering, the project focuses on understanding refugees and providing life skills to the refugee children in Banda Sunway. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. Also, a small disclaimer, today's podcast purpose is purely to spread awareness of what the refugees are going through and what we can do to help them. If you feel offended by any of the information in this podcast, we apologize in advance. Thank you. Next, we are happy to introduce our guest speaker, Ms. Angie. Ms. Angie, would you care to share a bit about yourself? Maybe we can get some info on your center and your role in the center. Hello, hi, I'm Angelina. You can call me Angie. I'm a volunteer coordinator for Manor House Learning Center. That's our refugee learning center. I've been volunteering for the past six and a half years. So um, I think uh, part of my job is obviously to teach. I also plan the academics, uh, the textbooks, uh, what books we should use for the year. And I also manage the volunteers as well as the timetable. So that's basically what I do on a daily basis. And um, a little bit more about our center. As you know, we are a refugee learning center. Uh, most of our kids are from Myanmar. About 90% of them are Zomi kids. And uh, the kids are ages 4 to 12. And uh, most of them have been in Malaysia for a very, very long time. Thank you for the introduction, Ms. Angie. May I also ask, what were you doing before you joined the Learning Centre as a volunteer coordinator? Ah, yes. Um, actually, I've been uh, volunteering actively uh, in terms of children's education for the past 14 years. Before Manor House, I was actually teaching with Malaysian care, but I was volunteering with the Orang Asli community. Wow, that's like really interesting. Uh, I've never met anyone who's working for the Malaysian care before. <laughs> yes. Also, do you mind me asking, what was your initial inspiration and motivation for being part of the Refugees Learning Centre, the current one you're in now? Thanks for the question, Luna. I've always been a great believer in children's education. So for me, when a child is not given that opportunity to go to school, it is actually very, very sad. So um, the best that I can do right now, given that the kids are unable to attend national school, is for me to volunteer and teach them in a learning center. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Also, I think the audience may be interested to know, what do you and the refugees actually do in the learning center? And are there any daily routines they have to follow? Uh, yeah, we try to stick to a daily routine as much as possible because we want to emulate uh, a school learning environment as proper as possible. So which means that the, the kids will come in every single day. We have a timetable for every day. They have their first session from 10 to 12. Then they break for lunch. And after that, they have their afternoon classes from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock. You have a very admirable job, especially seeing the current situation these refugee children face that seems almost unfair. But uh, why did the refugees leave their home countries and are here in Malaysia? I think uh, that is a, a very good question. A lot of people do not know why refugees exist or they might not even know that refugees are here in Malaysia. So I would just like to share a story of one of my kids. Uh, she was about 10 years old and 
there were a couple of nights when her parents were discussing and being 10, she obviously knew what was going on already. They were talking about soldiers that had been attacking the nearby villages. Her parents were very, very frightened and they were thinking of what they could do next. As a parent myself, uh, the safety of our, our kids are paramount. So what the parents did was basically they decided very quickly that they were just going to run away and bring their children to safety. They had two girls with them and they tried to sell everything they could literally almost overnight. They packed as fast as they could and um, they secured a passage to I think the main town and from there they traveled down to Thailand and they made it into Malaysia. I think it took weeks and it was very scary. They were scared. They weren't sure whether they were stopped by authorities. So that's life as a refugee. They didn't come to our country because they wanted to. And they, they are not here because they want to earn more money. Basically, they're running because they fear for their lives. So life as a refugee is not something that anyone wants you know, for themselves. Um, I I cannot imagine how the refugees must have felt like during those times, right? Even with their struggles to escape from persecution from their countries, refugees have faced a lot of judgments and even hostile treatments from some. But nonetheless, so many kind-hearted citizens also have been giving them the right treatments, right? So, but is there any thoughts you want to share on the treatment of the government specifically towards the refugee communities? Unfortunately, I think a lot of governments, not just our government, we tend to lump refugees together with the other migrants, whether they're economic migrants or those who have come in and exhausted their tourist visa. So everyone is counted as um, you know, those who have uh, stayed in the country without permission. And because of that, um, that is actually very unfair, I would think, because refugees are actually asylum seekers. They are here because they needed protection. And the very least that we um, as Malaysians and also our government could do is to provide them certain things to assure them they will not be harmed here. Uh, so, and this is contrasted with the vision that the UNHCR put out for the world, right? And for our listeners who are wondering, the UNHCR stands for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Oh, and so back to our questions. What is the UNHCR as an intergovernmental organization doing for the refugees? They are probably the most important body here in Malaysia for refugees because they all know that once they arrive here, the first place that they need to go is to do the UNHCR. They need to put in their names, the application for the UN card, and once they get their cards, it affords them a little bit of protection for the government. Because once you are a UNHCR card holder, if you are stopped by a police and they ask you for your card, at least there's some form of identification. If you do not have anything at all, the police will have every single right to detain you, you see. So um, that's, I think, a very important role of the UNHCR in Malaysia, particularly. And uh, they have a lot of support network as well. So once... Um, those refugees have gotten their cards. They are also putting themselves in line to be resettled to the third country, which is what most refugees want. They want to be resettled into a country that will legalize them so they can work and study and basically uh, have a great future ahead of them. And um, that's what UNHCR does as well. Uh, and in terms of the other things, they also support the learning centers in terms of providing us uh, for learning materials, uh, sometimes uh, teachers training as well. 
they also have partners, uh, NGOs that provide healthcare, and they are constantly updating themselves in terms of uh, getting more and more help and collaborating with NGOs as well to provide more help for the refugees. Um, those those things that you just said earlier, those are things that I never know before. So it's really informative. Um, I remember seeing that UNCHR volunteers got donations in McDonald's in Taipan too. So, however, I find it very unfortunate for the refugees in Malaysia to not share the same benefits. So, luckily, we have people like you who are trying to fill in the gaps while Malaysia is developing to be a better country. So, um, how does the Learning Center play a role in providing an inclusive environment for the refugees in terms of providing equalities and non-discrimination? I think Amira, you, you uh, hit on a very, very great point because while the Malaysian government doesn't legalize refugees, we have literally an army of volunteers and uh, people who are very aware of refugees and they are very, very willing to help all this um, you know, refugees, whether kids or adults. So we have met many, many wonderful people along the way. And in terms of our role as a learning center, our mission objective is really, really very simple. We just want to provide education uh, for all refugees. So it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what religion you have, you know, your skin color. If you want to study, just come. We'll welcome you. That was a soothing thing to hear, like hearing that they're, um, that they're surrounded by people who are very loving. And I'm sure the public are grateful that we have such learning centers who are so welcoming to these children. However, I am curious to know whether the sudden implementation of MCO in March affected the learning centers. Yes, it did, Luna. In fact, it will, we were taken by a huge surprise because when MCO hit, we were in the midst of our term break, that was in March, and we were told by UNHCR not to reopen because of COVID. And we had to tell the kids um, not to come to school and we told them, okay, you know, maybe it's just for two weeks. And that two weeks literally stretched into months. So it was very difficult for our kids because they miss school, they miss their friends. And we always wanted to, uh, you know, keep our school basically a safe haven for our kids. And they love coming to school. So when you, when you can't provide that for the kids and they're stuck at home and you know, they, they don't see people and they're frightened because they don't know what COVID is all about, everything just takes a toll on the kids. And in terms of providing them lessons, because it was so sudden, we were not able to uh, set up a system to get uh, books to them and they didn't have devices so we were not able to do online classes so the best that we could do at that point of time was actually to go through um, messages whatsapp you know through parents phone and anyone uh, you know who had a device and we just send homework and worksheet to them so at that point of time we still wanted learning to go on so that they will not lose out and they will feel that so that they would feel that they we were still in touch and we still cared rather than uh, feeling abandoned um, it was difficult. We only managed to reach about 60 to 70% of our kids, but um, it was the best that we could do at that point of time. So virtual learning would have disrupted the children's learning in some way. What kind of concerns have the children or the teachers voiced out recently or during that time? 
um, well, in terms of online learning, as we know, it's very difficult for a lot of kids to pay attention online, particularly if they are below 12 years old. To stare at a screen, especially if it's a very tiny one, a lot of them use handphones for a very long time, can be very tedious, and their attention run. And that's one, you know, you're, they are unable to pay attention. And secondly, because they don't see us, and uh, their learning style, basically, they, they are more comfortable if they have a face-to-face. -face. Uh, a lot of them, some have commented that they were unable to follow the online lessons. So we have to go really, really slow and it, um, lesson plans were all disrupted. But uh, like I said earlier, something is still better than nothing, right? So we were still able to continue our uh, lessons. Uh, the second round of MCO and RMCO, when it happened, we were more prepared. So we were able to um, get the kids more familiar with Zoom. So we started online classes and um, we have higher participation because when you, they can see us online and we, they can communicate with us, even though it's not physical face-to-face, -face, it's still, um, you know, not so bad. You, they, they can still see their friends, they can still see us. It got a little bit better, but um, also concentration is um, not very easy online. And we literally have to go at a snail's pace to ensure that every kid that's uh, present online doesn't get left behind. Okay, um, despite the difficulties, it's good to hear that you guys are doing better. So as we all know, the pandemic has affected almost every sector and institution in Malaysia, as well as the citizens. So how are the learning center and the kids adapting to the new normal? The first time around, it was difficult. Um, the, now that they have gotten used to um, you know, staying at home, doing online classes, things are a little bit better. And I think um, they are knowing that we are connected to them and they are also connected to their classmates. We have formed study groups on uh, chat groups and so that they can talk to each other. So that helps a lot and they are coping a lot better compared to the first round, thankfully. Besides that, what differences and difficulties did you as the partner and the refugee youths uh, faced recently compared to before the pandemic struck? Um, things before the pandemic were already difficult for all of us. Uh, after that, it got even tougher because it means that um, we can't have volunteers because not all our volunteers are able to conduct online classes. And secondly, we were unable to raise funds. So uh, what we had to do basically was to shut down our learning center. We gave up the premise because we needed to save on rental. So that was quite sad. And the kids, you know, but they, they were great. They accepted that. And we told them that as soon as we can open safely, you know, we'll look for a new place so that they can have a new school. So uh, losing our premise was quite sad for many of us and uh, because we've been there for so many years, right? And uh, of course, the other thing is the economic challenge that the families face. During the first MCO, almost overnight, most of our parents lost their jobs. So that was very, very difficult because they literally live hand to mouth. And if you do not work for a week, you don't have money for that week rental, electricity, water, food becomes an issue. And a lot of them had to move out, stay, they crammed together in flats, you know, so that they can save money. And I guess 
they were also very fearful of going out because at that point of time, there were a lot of detentions. Um, illegal workers were um, being uh, placed in detention centers and therefore they didn't really want to risk going out to look for any kind of job. So um, that was one of the biggest difficulty that we faced at that point of time and even up to now actually. I see. That is actually very unfortunate to hear. Um, but with all of this happening, I'm sure they have had a shortage of resources, right? So yeah. what are the resources and that they were missing and how did you overcome it? For us, we knew that they would immediately not be able to pay rental and utilities and also perhaps food. But because we have 53 families and we didn't want to exclude any family from help, what we did was we did a lot of food aids. So we felt that at the very least, if we can send groceries to them, that will take a big load off their minds and groceries can feed the family for maybe a week or two. So we did at least um, six rounds of food aid. We were very, very fortunate. There were a lot of very wonderful people who came forward to give donations. Lots of cash came in and we were able to give a lot of food uh, for our families who were extremely grateful. And we also had um, people who had donated money to help us pay for utilities for the most needy families. Um, we basically reserved those funds for single parent families and those who are very, very hard for poor. And that helped as, as well. How about um, laptops, stationery, and etc. for their educational purposes? Was it right. a problem at all? And how did you yeah. work out? Yeah, it's still a problem. We actually have, um, I think, four laptops, but out of that four laptops, only three are working. So we gave them to the older kids or those who are staying in uh, classes. And uh, so they could come together and study together. So um, we don't have enough devices for sure. A lot of our kids, they, help, uh, they, they take their parents' uh, cell phones or some of them have tablets, so they do, uh, you know, join in via their own devices. Uh, having equipped resources is definitely an essential factor in education. And speaking of access to education, what is the what is the difference in that treatment between Malaysians and refugees? Well, Malaysians are lucky in a sense that because we are citizens, we are accorded you know, free education, and we have almost free healthcare. And uh, that's something that I think we should not take for granted. For refugees, uh, particularly on the kids, not being able to access education is very monumental because this really harms their future. And I think it's just really unfair in a sense that education should not be a privilege. It should be a right of every single child. We cannot deny access to education to anyone who wants to learn. Yeah? I remember I heard from one of your students that he actually wanted to pursue, he wanted to go to a public school and then pursue a yeah. degree. And then mm -hmm. when I knew at that time that they couldn't. So I was like wondering like, or how, how is this going to work out? Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, that's true, Jennifer, because a lot of them have expressed that they want to go to university, they want to be teachers, they want to be doctors, they want to be engineers and, 
you know, all sorts of uh, ambitions that they have. And it is really sad for us sometimes because they, they, we know that if they remain in Malaysia, that is, will just be a dream that's going to be very hard to achieve. I wouldn't say impossible, but it requires a huge sum of money. And unless they can actually find sponsors, it's going to be difficult. So not uh, a very, very small a uh, number of kids got very lucky. They managed to find sponsors who are willing to sponsor them to private learning centers. So for refugee kids, you, you can't go into national school, um, but if you can afford private learning centers that, um, for example, uh, has the IGCSE curriculum, they can actually go there. But we know that the, the tuition fees are just not reachable for most of the families. Even paying 50 ringgit a month can be a problem for these families. What more hundreds of ringgit is just totally out of their reach. That's very devastating to yeah, hear. It is, yep. Then what kind of efforts can the listeners do to provide them with a proper learning environment? Well, I think uh, the first thing that uh, to do, which all of you are doing uh, that's incredible, is uh, spreading awareness. Because I think the more people know uh, of the situation of refugee children, uh, that helps a lot. Because um, a lot of people are still unaware that the refugee kids cannot go to school. The, in their mind, they can just go to national school and uh, graduate like any other kid. So awareness really, really helps. And of course, um, if... Uh, listeners can also volunteer with any NGOs that has uh, that services uh, refugee uh, communities. That would be wonderful because when you work with refugees, I think you're going to have a different mindset about them and you'll find them not so much different from all of us as well. Refugees are the most marginalized people on earth right now and to be able to serve them and it's uh, a privilege yeah, I agree. Um, and those are great ways to ensure that they can actually have a proper learning environment. But then, um, by only providing them um, learning environment, it just seems to be not enough. So what other efforts that can be done? Yeah, you, you, yeah, you got that right. Um, we also realized that because academics are just not enough, after a couple of years of uh, starting the school, we find that the kids got a little bit restless. So, and, and also because some of the kids are getting older, we wanted to provide them a different uh, learning experience. So we introduced uh, skill learning and uh, we had sewing classes, baking classes, not so much for the boys, unfortunately. So we need to introduce more of that. And also, um, we also wanted to do physical education. Our school is located in a shop house. So we don't have, proper facilities and uh, that becomes difficult because the kids naturally have a lot of energy and they have nowhere to burn it. So as of last year, uh, we started physical education. We used one of the public spaces outside and we took the kids out. One of the volunteer teachers uh, came in and uh, you know, uh, ran PE classes and the kids have a lot of fun. So that, that was really joyful to watch. Another thing that uh, we implemented about uh, two years back was basically mental health awareness in school and we provided counseling services for the children, um, particularly for the older ones. So um, we realized that that helped a lot because some of the kids, um, they have a lot of internal pressure and they have nowhere um, safe, not a safe space to let them out or to talk to anyone. So 
counseling helps a lot too. But we know that there are also like other anonymous, like let's say phone services, uh, for example, there's Talian Kase, which is given by mm-hmm. the government. Uh, yeah. Are they allowed to use these type of like um, phone services and are they any help to the refugee children? Um, they are technically because all these are run by NGOs so they can access all this help. In fact, the latest one that we um, we were made aware of is I think is I think it's called Teddy um, Conferencing where uh, children can actually call in if they're feeling sad or lonely or depressed. So this was a service that was specifically made for children, not just for refugees, but for any uh, Malaysian children or youth. And they can tap on that. But one of the things that we realize is that our refugee community, they tend to not want to use facilities like this because first of all, there is a language barrier. They are not comfortable speaking in um, Bahasa Malaysia, for example, or English, even though they can, they are, a lot of them are fluent in English, but they just do not have the confidence to pick up the phone and call and say, I need help or I need someone to talk to. So perhaps this is something that we, we can address in the future, especially with the older ones, because um, they might not want to talk to us, but to someone anonymous, it, it can help a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, uh, it didn't cross my mind about the language barrier thing. If, we, if the refugee kids were to use those anonymous phone services. And, and I think that um, if in the future there was, uh, if the learning centers were able to address those issues, I think it would be very great for them. Uh, okay, so moving on to the next topic. Relating to SDG4, which is quality education, do you think it's fair to prohibit refugee kids from enrolling in public schools? Oh, that's a solid no from me, definitely, because I feel that you know, it's totally unfair. You should never withhold education from not just children, but anyone who wants to learn. So, uh, but Malaysia, uh, the country did not sign the 1951 Refugee Convention. So she does not have the legal um, obligation to protect refugees uh, and Malaysia does not have the obligation to provide healthcare and education to uh, the refugees that have seek asylum here. I hope that can change because um, being able to access healthcare and education are just so important to the refugee community. We also hope that this can change soon. And, also, and because they have limited access to education, what kind of jobs will the refugees normally do once they're done learning? Yeah, a lot of our older kids who have graduated from school or even their parents, they tend to work in the service industry. So whatever job that they can find, um, usually in coffee shops or they go to um, retail uh, outlets where they can actually sell things. And a lot of them also seek jobs in factories. Some of the luckier ones manage to get uh, jobs that help them to build skills like plumbers, uh, electricians, but the majority will still work in the service industry. Okay, um, since refugees in Malaysia aren't actually granted legal job opportunities, what initiative do you think that the government should provide to make, to make better contributions to the refugee community in terms of job opportunities only? 
I think the first thing that the government can do is to legalize them or to provide them work permits so they can go to work without feeling the fear. Um, you probably have seen sometimes uh, when immigration rates happen and you see a lot of foreigners start running away. So that happens to our refugee parents as well. Whenever there's an immigration rate, the first thing that they'll do is that they will run. And if the, the government can provide them proper work permits, this is not going to happen. And they will be able to secure jobs that are you know, that they are suited to do or they have the skills to do rather than just take any menial job that they can get their hands on. Yeah, speaking of the rates, um, you can see many cases of refugees being ill-treated. So could you this be caused by the negative perceptions of the refugees? And what are some of the examples of negative stigma towards the refugees? I think the first thing that comes to people's mind when they think of refugee is uneducated, unfortunately. Um, they don't realize that when the refugees come here, it doesn't mean that when back in their home country, they didn't go to school. A lot of them or majority of them have actually attended school. Some of them are skilled workers. Some of them are professionals. But when they come here because they're illegals, they are unable to work. Uh, what they have studied or what they have built their trade to be. And um, so if they are working, for example, as a waiter and, you know, the, the general perception of public is that, oh, this person, you know, he's uh, an illegal worker, he must not be educated. So that's very harmful, a very harmful perception and um, quite demeaning and very degrading for them as well. I didn't know it was this serious though. Oh, but how does all these negative perceptions towards the refugees affect their job opportunities? Yeah, unfortunately, because um, I think in the, particularly in the past year due to COVID as well, uh, refugees and migrants have had very, very negative uh, publicities. And this also meant that when it's in the news, a lot of people read about them and they tend to believe them. And... Um, employers will hesitate to employ refugees simply because they do, they do not want to get into trouble with the government. Because I think the government did issue a directive that, you know, if you do hire an illegal, they can get a very huge fine. But having said that also, we, we do know people who have really, really uh, tried their very best during the MCO times and also uh, during the post-MCO uh, time to hire more refugees to give them a chance, you know, to earn money. But among all of the negative stigma about the refugees, what are the most dangerous ones that affect the refugee community the most? Well, I think uh, the most harmful one would be that the perception that refugees are a burden to the country. So when you think that they are a burden, people want to get them out, right? It's, they will say things like, go back to where you come from, you don't belong here, things like that. So um, that is uh, extremely harmful. That results in uh, bullying. And even our kids are not spared of that. We have heard of our kids telling us that they are being beaten up not just by words, you know, but by fist. They, they are frightened of going down to the playground to play because the local kids will come after them, shout at them and uh, chase after them. So it's all in all a very frightening experience. 
after discussing so much about issues that the refugees are facing, what can we and the listeners do to reduce the inequalities relating to the refugees? Um, I think um, all of us need um, extra awareness, you know, if we can read a little bit more and understand why refugees exist and where they come from, I think that will really help. And of course, if we can get a little bit more involved and open our hearts, you know, to volunteer, that can be, I think, even better. So can we help in any sense? Uh, of course, we can donate to the learning centers and um, that will help them a lot. I understand that from the beginning. But um, how else can we help the learning centers and the children and their families aside from like donating and fundraising, buying food for them? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest things that my refugee children and also their moms and dads have um, told us, you know, in terms of the experience of uh, dealing with the general public, uh, the authorities, etc. Um, sometimes because they have been mistreated so much, that it, it causes a lot of mistrust between them and the locals. So if all of us could actually, um, you know, have this we mentality rather than an I mentality because they are here as, a guest, as guests in our country and they are not here by choice. So if we can embrace them and uh, do not view them so much as a burden to the economy, I think that can help a lot. So basically treating them with kindness and uh, respect that they deserve as people. Oh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the fundraising and donating. So do you think that the fundraising and donations from the public would be helpful for the refugee learning centers? Definitely, because every single learning, refugee learning center in Malaysia and everywhere around the world, I presume, uh, would need money because that's the one thing that we are always lacking of. And it isn't easy to raise money, and especially in these times because economy is so depressed and everywhere, um, you know, there are always bodies that would need donation. So um, yeah, definitely donations help a lot. But we are also aware that sometimes the public or people who would like to donate, they are a little bit wary because um, money mismanagement can happen anywhere. And if you know, money can be used for other things as well. And that's, that is something that we really try uh, not to uh, abuse because uh, transparency is very important. So if you were to donate us some money, usually if you feel better, if you would like to donate in kind, it's better if you can send, for example, groceries so that we can parcel it out to the families. And um, if cash is uh, given to us, it will always be used to offset our uh, needs, paying off bills, uh, utilities, rental, uh, providing lunch for the kids. So money is always used for the children. Okay, so let's say we want to donate. Um, where exactly can we donate to this? Is it the centers or the fundraisers? Um, well, we will accept you know, direct donations to us. You can write to us through our Facebook uh, Messenger or you can, uh, we can also go through uh, bodies like Isaac. You can uh, donate to Isaac and uh, Isaac will be able to channel that uh, fund to us as well. Besides providing direct funds to the center, what other kind of donations is, is expected by the Refugees Learning Center? 
I usually like to ask for food because uh, we, uh, in, when we have uh, in-person classes, we provide lunch every day. So usually whenever there are people who ask, you know, what else can I give? I will ask for bags of rice, uh, fresh chicken, you know, things like that, so that the kids can have better lunch. Okay, um, I think we all have gained great insights into the lives of the refugees. And I'm sure so many of us are wondering, how helping refugees actually change your point of view about life? Um, when I first volunteered at the centre, I had zero experience or zero interaction with any refugees. I, I, have, I think I have come face to face with refugees, but I probably didn't know they were refugees because you know, they just look like anyone else, right? Um, I remember my first few times at the learning centre when I came in and the kids were sitting down so primly and properly and they were smiling at me. They were all so adorable. Um, so um, they're just like any other kids, you see. So they are joyful. They are mischievous sometimes. And uh, they were so curious about me because I think at that point of time, they did not have a lot of Malaysian teachers, but uh, now obviously they have a lot of uh, Malaysian teachers, but they're still curious about us. And uh, there was a lot of interaction and I found the kids so absolutely so wonderful. I think as time go, uh, went by, I got a lot more attached to the kids and to see them grow, um, you know, over the years has been a wonderful experience for me. So um, while I had gone in with... Um, no experience teaching refugee children, I felt that it, had, it didn't differ very much from my Orang Asli experience or any other kids, in fact. You know, children are kids. They are just the same everywhere. Um, thank you for all the information, Miss Angie. I think we really ended on a really good note. That's very inspiring to hear that even though they're going through all this, they're still happy they're still curious about malaysians and i think that's the spirit that even we malaysians need to learn from them yeah that's so, true yeah to summarize today today we have talked in this podcast we have talked about the issues the refugees are facing such as discrimination they're being marginalized by the country um a lot of governments aren't doing much for the refugees even though they are still human, they should be treated as people who are seeking asylum. And the treatment they receive from people around them, like the locals, because they are unaware of their situation um, and how the media portrays them, I think that causes a lot of negative perceptions towards them as well. And we have also went through how to help them by fundraisers, donating food, directly um, donating to the learning centers, um, volunteering for NGOs, and spreading awareness. Other than that, we have also discussed how the pandemic affected them, how online classes weren't that feasible, how some of them, even though we, you could reach 60 or to 70% of them, there was still that 30 to 40% who maybe aren't fortunate enough to have that cell phone, to have WhatsApp and all that. And also, we admire you a lot in a sense that you really pushed through everything, even though it was really hard the whole time. And yeah, that's about it. We're very grateful to have learned all this information. I think even, even though we're doing this for the listeners, I feel like me, Amira, and Luna have really learned a lot from this. And we are 
we really look up to the refugees now and we also look up to you and the learning center and everyone who volunteers for these type of things. We now understand that inequalities they face in job opportunities and education and I hope everyone has taken something back today even though it's not the whole podcast we don't expect the whole podcast to be memorized by the listeners I hope we feel some sort of empathy towards them so my call to action to the listeners today firstly you can donate fundraisers as Ms. Angie said, directly to the Mana House Learning Center or any other centers, refugee learning centers. You can contact them through their Facebook Messenger. It's called Mana House Learning Center um, and donate directly. You can donate um, anything you want. You can donate money. Um, are they, is it possible to donate clothes as well? Yes, clothes okay. as well as stationary items. And also groceries. Um, next. We can also raise awareness for the refugees as we have learned today. You can talk to your friends about it. You don't even need to go that far in even um, sending a message, uh, read more about this, listen to this podcast. Yes, that could really help them a lot. If you're free enough or if you don't know what to do with your time, if you feel inspired by this um, podcast, in fact, you can go volunteer for the NGOs that offer help to the refugees and Definitely, the last thing you can do is really um, reflect and research more about these refugees. We know, I'm sure many of the listeners have experienced bullying before, um, physically or mentally. That's it's still deteriorating, and we can't imagine how it must, how humiliating it must feel to run away from your country just to avoid persecution. Then you're not even able to seek help or seek citizenship in our country in the country you run to. So now we know that refugees are not a burden to this country, but rather they are seeking assurance. And I think that we Malaysians should be proud that they actually came here. They saw our country as an opportunity. Once again, thank you, Miss Angie, for joining us today. And thank you for listening and joining us today. Thank you to our moderators for today as well. We hope you all had a splendid day and remember the call to actions because you can make a difference in the refugees' lives. Thank you.